Good morning. We begin our fourth week of this study of spiritual discernment, uh, learning to see God in all things that we might serve Him and love Him and all. This week we're really going to talk about the building blocks of a sound discernment practice. And the the overarching theme, we're going to look at five building blocks over the course of this week, but the overarching theme is really this, that you will not be spiritually discerning if at the core of your being you have not surrendered to the love of God. You've not willingly, joyfully surrendered and discovered uh, his love in this deep way, but also there's a leaning into uh, the goodness of God. So the, the, the foundational belief, number one, of these building blocks is it really is to have a, a, a realization that all of your life and everything that, that really has any lasting value and that you're able to see and, and weigh correctly and, and choose correctly. Everything begins with the Trinity. I know that doesn't sound very practical, but in a way, once you begin to understand the function of the Trinity, the way the Trinity functions in terms of, of wisdom and sight, and you begin to be able to spiritually see and spiritually hear, it all flows out of the communication and understanding that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, these three are one, and you and I have been given the third person of the Trinity as the divine resident in our hearts, in our in our spirit, uniting our spirit to his spirit. Our identity is now tied to the very trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's the Holy Spirit abiding with us, residing in us. Now, this, I mean, again, this is somewhat profound, is the fact that if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the fullness of God residing in you. <laughs> You're not the fullness of God, but the fullness of God resides within you, in the deepest place of your being. And so, what he brings to your life is he comprehends what is truly God's, what's, what's truly of God, and he interprets the deep things of God to us. This is what we want to look at first. Why is this so important? Because Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is really explaining the wisdom of God versus the, the foolishness of this world and the foolishness of men that is actually called the wisdom of man or wisdom of human beings. But here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 12. He says, So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You understand? <laughs> We're going to talk at length at this, but you can't understand the things of God by deduction or induction or intuition only by revelation, because the only one who understands the thoughts of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the thoughts of God, is the very Spirit of God. 
And then here's what Paul says. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. See, to be afraid of the Holy Spirit, to be unfamiliar with the communication of the Holy Spirit is to shut your heart off from understanding the things of God. And understanding the things of God will help you and will give you a decided advantage at understanding what's going on in your life, the things of destiny, purpose, what the resources are, even uh, when you're going through the most difficult of times. In other words, the one who is within you understands from the perspective of God. If you're not understanding his communication with you, you're not understanding the things of God because you can't just intuit them. You can't simply deduce them or in some ways create them. You have to, you have to receive the wisdom of God. So the, the apostle here, uh, one of my professors in seminary was very precise. He didn't like the word revelation. He liked the word illumination. And he says, this is the apostle here in 1 Corinthians 2. He's describing the work of illumination. He says it involves the spirit searching the depths of God, not because he does not know the mind of God, for the Holy Spirit is God, but in order to grant to us All of this is about us in order to grant to us the understanding that the Lord wants us to have. See, the Lord is constantly communicating by his spirit the understanding he wants you to have, but you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear, and you have to have a heart that's committed to follow through. In other words, he searches the mind of God for our sake. He does not just open our minds and hearts at conversion. Instead, he continues throughout our Christian lives to make the gospel make sense to us and convince us of its truth. I've said this before, but it's important to say it now. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the beginning of your Christian life only. It is the overriding truth and the overseeing truth of your entire life. You live not just because, you know, you don't just come into grace and you're done with it. You're under grace for the rest of your life. You don't just, you know, accept kind of a, a pass to heaven. You're you're being ushered into a relationship with God uh, as an adopted daughter, adopted son. You're in relationship with Jesus as a fellow heir. Everything that you need for life and godliness is received, and it's not achieved. And so unless... Unless we're really understanding Jesus' words, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, he has made it to where we don't have to do anything apart from him because he has put his own spirit, the spirit of Christ, to illumine our path every single minute of every day. This, uh, Dr. Sproul is the professor that I had, and here's what he said. This work of illumination does not operate by giving us secret insight that one cannot derive by reading the text in context. Scripture is not a code book or the basis for fanciful allegorizing. Illumination, rather, takes what is already there and makes it real to us, makes it alive to us. 
Without the Holy Spirit's work of illumination, we will never understand the Bible in a saving way. Many people read the Bible, know what it teaches, but never believe its message. It's not that they are somehow less intelligent. They do not believe because they have not received, they have not been willing to receive the only, only, only ability to do so, and that is the Holy Spirit illuminating their, their heart, their beliefs, their understanding, their commitments, their trust. Uh, Dr. Froll said it this way. He said, we should thank God every day that he has granted us the capacity to trust in his word. Even your love for his word, your trust in his word, is not something that you or I can glory in. Somehow, <laughs> through all of our walls and all, our, all of our issues and all our lies, the Holy Spirit broke in and grant, granted us illumination. It's not because we're smarter, but it's because his illumination has been received. And every time that you study his word, every time you read his word, you can ask for greater and greater illumination. Listen to what the Apostle John, this isn't just an Apostle Paul thought. The Apostle John said, the Holy Spirit has been given to us by God at Jesus' request to lead us into, into truth. This is John 16 and the teaching that Jesus gives on the Holy Spirit from verses 7 through 15 that he would send another. And I love that, that, that word. Um, he will send another because it's a, it's a very distinctive Greek word. And it isn't another different from, but it's another exactly like. As much as you and I might long to have walked the earth with Jesus, what Jesus is saying is you are walking the earth with Jesus right now, that this spirit of truth, this spirit of comfort, this spirit of Christ that we are uh, living life with, residing within us, is the very same as the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I have the fullness of Jesus residing as uh, within the walls of our life. That's an incredible reality. John says it again, uh, quoting Jesus in John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. You see, what we're talking about here is, is available to every believer to know the mind of the Trinity, to know the knowledge of the Trinity, to know the heart and, and, and passions of the Trinity. Because the spirit that resides in you has access and, and, and understanding of everything that God needs you and wants you to understand for the sake of your life. But here's, here's what you begin to realize. This is a volitional thing. It's voluntary. How much commitment you make to discernment is your commitment. This is where your heart truly has a freedom of choice. Am I committed to discernment as a personal? Even am I, permitted, am I committed to being with a community of people who have that same kind of commitment to discernment? I mean, this, is, this isn't just why we're 
studying for these weeks on discernment, you know, I mean, individually, we're concerned that each of you, uh, as pastors, we're concerned that each of you see God well in this pandemic, see God well in this turmoil in our nation of injustice, racial injustice, social injustice, that you see God well so that so that you have the tools to overcome and so that you live out of the faith that you are more than conquerors. But it's not enough that we give it to you individually. What I'm learning more and more is, is illumination, and I would call it revelation, but my professor always said illumination, works best communally. It works best in a community. And the truth is it works best in a community of diversity, where there's not just one way of looking at things, but but we bring our own experiences, we bring our both youth and, and old age, and we bring our different cultures and backgrounds, and we come and, and we learn from one another. I, I want to take just a minute to, to share. I When I was eight years old, I grew up in Mississippi in a very small town in Mississippi. There were no there were no people in that town who were not either, you know, white or African-American. I mean, that, that was all that there was when I was growing up, when I was eight years old. And so to my surprise as an eight-year-old, one day in our church, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, a little small Presbyterian church. One day, a Korean man came, very devout Presbyterian, very devout Christian man came. He was exactly the age of my father. They were both 28. And my parents, who really grew up in a very segregationist mindset and segregationist background, invited this man home after service for, for dinner. And uh, his name was Chong Sang Kim. And he came into our home, and my mother was a huge rice maker. I mean, she lo- we loved rice. We had rice any time we possibly could. And so immediately he f- was excited and felt home at home because, because he would, you know, was at a, an Air Force base where they didn't give rice very often. And so he began, became a constant fixture every week in our home. As a matter of fact, he became my Uncle Sang and became probably my dad's best adult friend. But when he had to go back, he was on training uh, at the Air Force Base, and when he had to go back to Seoul, I remember him saying to me, uh, you know, God is calling you to other nations. I was eight years old, I had no idea. And he said, someday you must visit Korea, which I've never been able to do. But I, I remember as this eight-year-old going, my whole world opened up. First, by meeting someone from another country, another culture, who had amazing stories of escape from communists who were trying to kill his father for his faith. Uh, amazing stories of how he grew up and how devoted he was to the Lord, how devoted he became to my family and us to him. My life was, you know, was forever changed, but... What, I, what I'm trying to say is, if all you ever do is try to keep your discernment into a very you know, limited box of just the way you look at the world and the way you look at issues, you will never have the fullness 
of what God has for us communally. And I think part of what was formed in me, even as an eight-year-old, is that the church should be this place where it's a reflection of what God's doing in every part of the world, in every culture, and of the benefits and the expansiveness of how we together begin to understand the heart of God beyond our own experiences. In a way, if all we ever have in terms of discernment is our own experiences, it's like we have this very narrow bandwidth. And though God is speaking so widely and so powerfully, all we have is a tiny little receiver. And the greater our connection and the greater our experiences, the bandwidth begins to expand and you begin to hear God in such clear ways, but such a wider wisdom such a wider understanding. But it takes, it's a voluntary commitment. You can make your world smaller so that you feel like you're making it safer, but truly the smaller you try to make your world, the more fear-based. It's not leaning into the goodness of God. It's not surrendering to the love of God. One writer that impressed me on this issue, he said, one great need of the church today is to experience the dynamic leadership of Christ as its head. The scriptures promise us that Christ's spirit will be with us, will guide us, and will lead us into all truth. This is the most striking implication of one's belief in the resurrected Lord. If Christ is alive, and he is, he desires to lead his church. If Christ desires to lead his church, his will should be sought. If his will can be sought, it can be discerned. And if it can be discerned, it deserves to be obeyed. This is nothing more than the basic Christian life. Again, I go back to John. Uh, I'm sorry, not John. Back to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. And here, here he, he says it so clearly, clearly. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This idea of divine illumination, it goes right along with another aspect of what is going on in your life. There's an inward and internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. There's a witness of the Spirit to your spirit. These are both closely related. You know, His Spirit within you cries, Abba, Father. That's the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God. It's a supernatural declaration of both your identity and your status. And in the same way that the Spirit gives you this identity declaration, He gives you divine illumination. He works through, and this is His very normal practice, He works through the Scriptures. He works through the prophets that have been recorded for us. He works through the apostles who have devoted themselves to teaching us and putting it in writing. But when we talk about this divine illumination, we're speaking about more than just God's Spirit giving us understanding of Scripture and more than just God's Spirit's confirmation that we are His children. What we're talking about is Him beginning to apply this truth directly to our lives. He can do this 
through a text that you've read or perhaps you're very familiar with, but all of a sudden, at a certain point in your life, at a moment of clarity, the Spirit comes and you're struck by something in the text that though you know it, you've never noticed it before. Or you see exactly how God's Word applies to a specific context. Sometimes it's almost like the argument that has escaped us for so long, we can see it so clearly in our mind's eye. These are examples of the work of the Spirit in illumination. Well, this leads me to this. You see, if he's working to illuminate us, then what he's looking to produce is the second foundational block, and this is that it creates an impulse within you. It it creates a longing or a a drive or a movement within you to discern. In other words, if I tell you it's the Spirit's work to reveal to you God's heart for you, and you begin to say, well, I want to know that, (laughs) then that's a clear indication that the Spirit is at work. Ruth Haley Barton calls it, then you know it's a good spirit. You know, the the desire to discern God's heart is not a bad spirit. It's a good spirit that needs to be cultivated. In other words, there's another way to put this. It's your spirit in union with his spirit syncing up together. What he's been wanting to do, now your spirit is telling you, I want to do this. I, I have an impulse to discern, to see the things of God in my life. Ruth Haley Barton says it this way, when individuals have a deepening desire to move beyond intellectual prowess and self-effort to spiritual discernment and all that it requires, this is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work among us. And this work is pretty remarkable. Another writer I love is David Benner, and he says, even though we may desire to become more discerning, egocentricity and self-control are fundamental dynamics of the human condition. We know we're supposed to surrender to God's will and may genuinely want to, but most of us continue to face the almost irresistible tendency to assert our own will. We overhear Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but thine be done, but have trouble making it our own. See, what he's saying here is so essential again, is, is you've got to cultivate that impulse to become discerning. You can't resist it, and you can't just hope it happens. It has to be cultivated. So when we want to move into discernment mode, it's really about relying on the Spirit who knows the mind of God to help us learn even how to distinguish between willfully asserting our own wishes and trying to make them, in a sense, like give uh, give. Give our agenda, our you know purposes and objectives, and say, well, this this must be the will of God because this is what I want, which is a, an example of willfulness, and it takes discernment from the Spirit to even know the willfulness that's going on, to actually willingly surrender to God's desires. Here's an interesting is an interesting diagnosis that God goes on. If I if I'm saying this has to happen and it doesn't happen, and I'm angry with God, and I lose faith and trust, then guess what? It was willful. 
Because if I'm truly willingly surrendered to God, then the results and the outcome and the timing is I've surrendered that. And so I'm letting it unfold. I'm not demanding that it happen. And you have to understand this willfulness, willingness contrast is what the Spirit is trying to reveal to you. Many people have willfully prayed without ever willingly surrendered. And only the Spirit can really illuminate our willfulness. I mean, the truth is that the, this kind of a, that willfulness is this kind of naked force of self-propulsion. And it's actually spiritually and psychologically destructive. Now, I mean, it can also be propelled by a conviction and have a strength of conviction. And, 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 and we, can, we can have that kind of grit, that kind of perseverance that gets us to follow through even though something is difficult. That's not what we're talking about. Willfulness is stubbornness. It's not perseverance. It's, it's, it's saying, I'm not moving. I'm not changing. So it's rigid. You know, it's kind of the, if you know Moby Dick, it's sort of the irrational Captain Ahab that's within us, gritting our teeth and refusing to let go. It's grandiose. Oh, man, I can't tell you how many people I know who think they're being servants of God, but they're really just being grandiose. It's an inflated self-acting as if, as if this willfulness is the master and commander of the universe. Willfulness is more against something than for something. It's funny, some of the most willful, unhealthy leaders I've ever met, every conversation in private I ever had with them was always negative. It was always what they were against and who was against them and how it was them against the world. <laughs> I remember I worked with this one guy. He was a little bit older. He was, well, he was six years older than me. I was 26, he was 32. We were on the mission field. And, you know, sometimes I'm a little slower than I want to be. But every time I was with him, he was talking about every other missionary all over the world because he had been the personnel director of our mission. He was talking about every other missionary all over the world exposing to me all their negative secrets. And I was young, so at first I'm like, wow, he's trusting me with this information. But then he just kept doing it and kept doing it. And I started thinking, wow, if he's talking this negatively about them to me, what's he saying about me to everybody else? And, and it became not only a destructive relationship, but it was destructive not only spiritually but emotionally to the team. You know, there's, there are some aspects of this willfulness and its rigidity and its stubbornness that basically is saying, my way or no way. Therefore, willfulness, the end result is death, not freedom. It's an act of rebellion. It's like letting a two-year-old run your life in defiance against the instructions for life. In, in Christian terms, you could say it's the unwillingness to offer that prayer 
of release like our Lord Jesus taught and modeled. Not my will, but yours be done. So if these two building blocks are there in your life, so you say, okay, wow, you know, I have access to the knowledge of the Trinity and the one who brings that knowledge now resides within the walls of my life. And then you say, I've got a desire. I've got a longing. I have an impulse towards seeing and knowing and obeying the will of God. I don't want to be willful. That's destructive. That's stubbornness, rigidity, negativeness. That's me saying my way or no other way. But you're beginning to have this impulse to say, not my will, because my will is not enough for me anymore. But yours be done, Lord. Well, if that, those two building blocks are there, then it becomes essential that the prayer of your heart follow Ephesians 5.18. Lord, fill me with your spirit. What are we asking for? Well, Wayne Grudem is a major theologian in the evangelical circles, and he says, we're asking God for an event subsequent to conversion in which a believer experiences a fresh infilling with the Holy Spirit. This filling, this fresh filling, can result in a variety of incredible consequences. Greater love for God, greater victory over sin, greater power for ministry, and even at times the receiving of spiritual gifts that affirm this fresh event, this fresh filling. Now, what would make us to where we would say in a desperate kind of way or in a truly authentic way, fill me Holy Spirit? Usually it's when we realize the affections of my life, the spiritual power in my life is not enough. See, at times you may look at yourself and see the weakness, you may see the failings and all like that. That's actually a gift from the Holy Spirit to see it. Because when you get disillusioned enough, then just talking is not enough anymore. Anemic worship's not enough. Weakness over sin is not enough. It's when we get to that place we can say, whatever it takes, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit and any gifting you would be pleased to give me. You see, what I'd like you to do is, as we've talked about practicing solitude and silence, here would be a spiritual discipline about the fullness of the Holy Spirit that would make a difference in your life. It has made such a difference in my life. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Shine your glorious light on any area of my life where I am willfully going against your desires for my life. Again, I really believe that if you grasp this contrast between your own willfulness, which you're trying maybe to direct towards God, but is spiritually and emotionally destructive, it's actually rebellion, not obedience, to this kind of surrendering to his love, leaning into his goodness, and say, Lord, I willingly yield my will to yours. I want to know your heart. Fill me. Holy Spirit. And you can even say, as some who started revivals years ago said, fill me, Holy, fill me, Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen.